Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This is an episode, probably one of my first episodes, that I debated for a while whether to release. The guest today is Professor Emin Gun Sir, who's an extremely controversial person in the crypto industry for a very, very, very long time. He's brilliant. There's no doubt about it. But I also know he's very controversial and he's got ulterior motives working on other coins other than Bitcoin, which most of my guests do. The problem is, is that I feel like sometimes I don't have the specific technical knowledge to call him out on some of the technical things that he claims to have solved. I think it's important to hear from him, whether you're a critic or fan, because He had founded a cryptocurrency before Bitcoin called Karma in 2003, and he's been a Cornell professor for almost 20 years. His involvement in the space goes back to the early, early, early days coding for Bitcoin and working on different aspects of crypto, you know, especially when it comes to on-chain and off-chain scaling. He's a co-director of the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Smart Contracts, and now he's the co-founder and CEO of Ava Labs. He was one of the the founders of Bitcoin NG. This was before Bitcoin Cash, before BSV. And we talked about stories and things went early on. He was apparently the one who found the DAO bugs, uh, nine of them, and tried to warn before the huge, massive $50 million loss. Enjoy the episode. I think you're going to really, really love it. Just remember that I'm going to be having guests on this show that I may agree with, but I also may not agree with. And I think it's extremely important for the chronicling of crypto's history and Bitcoin's history to make sure we have people that we agree with and we don't agree with for the sake of not whitewashing and not censoring the history. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Bitpanda, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on on this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcast in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. On the show today, we have Professor Emin Gunt Sirar. Prof- well, can I still call you professor? Because you're not a professor anymore. Well, I'm on leave right now, so <laughs> I'm still a professor, but I think you know, I respond to anything. Gunt is what my friends call me. I'll respond to, hey, yo. Hey, yo. You like. <laughs> no, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you Goon. I actually like that. But um, you were a professor at Cornell for for almost 20 years in, in computer science. Um, and you know, like I had, I had a lot of I have a lot of research planned, and I usually like prepare my first questions. But I I want to ask you something that's just kind of on the top of my head, and I really want your perspective. And let me preface with a little bit of like not story, but a little bit of background before I before I ask you know the, not a question, but more of like your opinion. So a little bit of background for the listeners. Um, you, you've you been very involved in Bitcoin going back as early, I mean, 
probably I think earlier than me even. Like what what year did you did you did you start posting? Um, because you were putting out papers and academic papers as early as 2013. Yes, 2013. So you were very involved in the early days, and you correctly um and with a ton of integrity and a ton of like goodwill and sincerity because of your love for Bitcoin and for the industry. Um, well, there wasn't really much of an industry back then. During those years, you put out academic papers talking about vulnerabilities in Bitcoin. You put out um, scaling ideas and proposals. I mean, as early as back as Bitcoin NG. And then you actually had attempted to put out a cryptocurrency as early back as 2003. And I want to ask you about that called Karma. Extremely well-versed. You know, you're a professor of computer science for almost 20 years. You've worked on operating systems. So first, you know, thank you for 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 loving Bitcoin. That that's first, and for and for loving this industry. But I want to this. So this is my question. Now that I've prefaced it with the listeners, as you remember, I walked into I walked into into my uh, into my sabbatical. You know, into into federal prison in, around 2015. And so from then on, for for like an for like a two year period or for an 18 month period, I missed out on, you know that pivotal year, year and a half on, 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 in our industry. And so one of the reasons I started the show is to like, just fill that gap by talking to people who are there. Not only you were there, but you were very, very much part of this industry. What I want to know is what happened. And what I mean by that is I remember days before I went in where you can post academic papers. You know, I, I, you know, it was like when I was doing my research, dude, like it was bringing tears to my eyes because I was reading such lovely correspondence and conversation between you, Gavin, Greg Maxwell, Luke Desheer, like, like all the, and then now you have all these people just are at each other's throats or they were during the scaling wars. And I don't really want to get into that, by the way. I don't want to talk about scale, like scaling wars or civil war. This is not a negative show. And I never, I, I rarely bring, bring that up unless it's in the context of history. But you're a thinker, you know, you, you, you understand sociology. What happened in that pivotal year or year or two that turned our community into this like unified community of wanting to push this forward in a, in a sincere way to this tribalism and multiple blockchains and Bitcoin cash and Bitcoin SV. And basically what happened, what happened from when we all wanted to, to scale Bitcoin together and to grow it on one chain where now, I mean, you look at you even now, you, you, I guess from frustration or you tell me from what you've launched your own you know, laboratory, you've launched Ava Labs and, and you're launching uh, and you're helping people build private and public blockchains that scale in ways that you think are better and that you promote really to have as many transactions as, as Visa or MasterCard. So I want to talk about that. But like in your eyes, like what changed? Are there any pivotal moments or any stories you could tell me about like how how that uh, how our community, I guess, started to, to diverge? Like what happened? Sure. Um, let's, uh, yeah, let me try to give you some vignettes from my perspective. I think those were, as you said, fantastic years. Um, I, I look on them very fondly. We had a great, great time. I'm still having a great time, by the way, but you're right. The, the nature of the interactions have changed and shifted. So for many of us, uh, I think Bitcoin is kind of like our first kiss. 
you never forget your first kiss. I remember everything about the, my, my very first one. And I remember everything about the day I read uh, the Bitcoin white paper and, um, and, and getting really excited. And um, you're right. I had worked on, on, uh, on cryptocurrencies before Satoshi. I had actually built something called Karma and it had proof of work mining in it. But it didn't have the fantastic breakthrough that Satoshi brought to the table, which is the consensus protocol he brought in, right? The mining-based, super robust protocol that he invented. What was your proof of work before? It was just like it was just like this one, except um, you had to solve a puzzle yourself with your own machine, and that granted you a constant-sized purse. So you solve it once, you get some coins, karma coins, and then that's your karma. And um, you can use it to download files. I, I invented Karma for file downloading on the internet. Remember how people were sharing files, but they were they would download the files, but they would never upload. They would leech. It was called the leeching problem. I was trying to solve the leeching problem. And so what Karma did was you had to solve a, solve the, the, the POW puzzle. And uh, when you did, you got a, you know, a purse, say 5,000 Karma. And uh, you could download a bunch of blocks, but you would ultimately run out. And so, um, so if you wanted to download more stuff, then you'd have to start uploading because after all, there's a finite supply of these coins. So that was the core idea. It predated um, Satoshi by uh, six years, seven years, maybe. We started in 2002, we published in 2003. So, uh, so I was there, um, but you know, I lacked a bunch of things. I lacked two things. One, I did not have the consensus protocol side. I wasn't creating a blockchain. I was creating the coins, the tokens. I was keeping tabs on them using a different kind of a consensus protocol. But his consensus protocol is much more robust than what I was using. I was using what's called a classical protocol. So uh, of the kind that people are envisioning for ETH 2.0. So those protocols are fairly, fairly fragile. So um, in any case, that's one thing I, I lacked. And the second thing that my system lacked was timing. You know, it was 2002. I was a young assistant professor. I just invented karma, and um, my colleagues came to me, senior colleagues, older, stolid professors, and they said, look, this is cool and all, but you'll never get funding for this. You're crazy because 9-11 just happened. You're not going to be able to, like, this thing can facilitate terrorism. You, oh. you won't be able to get any funding whatsoever. This is a stupid topic. And I, You know, I were, never, I wonder if, like, you know, it... <laughs> Don't forget your thoughts because I want you to continue. But what I and, and I and I and I won't forget. So I'll make sure that you continue on that. But I never thought of that. That's a very good um, uh, point that you just made. That a lot of people say that Satoshi on purpose released the white paper, you know, around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and maybe he was sitting on it for years. You think that he maybe potentially like the Satoshi or Satoshi group could have invented Bitcoin around like the nine eleven time, but decided to sit on it for a few years because of terrorism related like type of things i i don't know i think i i don't know you know exactly what could have been going on but most inventors find it very hard to sit on their ideas and uh and given given the timeline satoshi first published the white paper then the implementation happened about a year and a little bit afterwards so given that um i suspect not I suspect he published the idea as soon as he had it, and uh, and his timing was impeccable. Really, he came right. Yeah, he came right after the financial crash, 
And, uh, and so, so, you know, people were distrustful. We didn't know what was going to happen with the quantitative easing with the central bankers. Nobody knew who they were going to give the money to. Uh, helicopter Ben was around and, you know, he had, he was saying crazy things about giving money out and he was giving money out onto everybody's balance sheet and, uh, you know, bonuses were being paid. Um, I have a bunch of funny stories from that time, by the way. So yeah, let's hear them. Oh, so, you know, here we are. And like don't worry about going off topic because I'm writing down the topics and we can always go back to them. Yeah. Okay. I'm having a blast. So I'll just, <laughs> I'll just talk and have fun. So, um, so, you know, the, the crisis happened and not a single person on, on wall street went to jail. So that's, that's okay. I lived know? on wall street and, and I did go to jail. So technically that's not true. <laughs> You're one of the rare exceptions. You did not go to jail for crashing the economy. Your, your case is special. <laughs> The guys crashed the economy. So suddenly we were unable to, we, we were at Cornell. We, we had nothing whatsoever. We're isolated four hours away in the woods, surrounded by horse farms. And um, we had nothing to do with this mess. And all of a sudden we can't hire new people, which is fine. Um, our salaries are frozen, which is fine. And then one day, these like two big guys, like upstate guys, they walk in. And they come into like the lounge where the faculty sit and they start unbolting the coffee machine. And we're like, what the hell's going on? And uh, they're like, we can't afford the coffee machine anymore. We're taking it away. No. And it, was, it was so crazy. Yeah. We're like, how did, like, no one went to jail except the coffee machine. The coffee machine went to jail. The coffee machine was, went to jail. It was crazy. They took that away. And you're like, what the hell's going on with the economy? Like, this is out of control. And uh, you leave these these uh, these types alone for, for, for about a decade. And once every decade, they manage to screw things up. And so it was in that context that Satoshi released this, and and he ended up tapping into something in the zeitgeist, something in people's consciousness that was that was clearly there. That people are very, very were very, uh, you know, unnerved about what was to come. So, uh, so, and that's why you get a lot of libertarians in in uh, in Bitcoin. So that, that, those were the early days. So um, I don't know. Um, so going forward from there, what happened? You know, um, there were some really cool meetings I remember in the early days where Gavin, Greg, uh, you know, the two were on talking terms at the time. Sure. They were working very well. Very together. closely. I was in a lot of these like just coffee shops, Panera Bread, a coffee shop in Vienna with Gavin. Like everyone was yeah. friends. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, we had a common task, right? And that's what united us. Uh, people didn't know about this technology. It's like you were part of the special geeky kids crowd. And for a change, the geeky kids had something on everyone else, right? Oh, it's like, I love that. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, we know something you guys don't. And, uh, and it's cool. And look at this and look what I can do. And um, so, uh, so it was amazing. Um, I remember... Uh, getting invited to um, to uh, to a gathering in the woods. I'm not going to name the name of it. Uh, it was about 1,500, maybe 2,000 people um, in uh, in the woods in Northern California. It's a secret meeting of uh, movers and shakers. And uh, and I remember briefing a bunch of politicos. I think I single-handedly in one meeting ended up giving a Bitcoin lecture to uh, to a lot of political figures uh, who were up there. And uh, briefing them on, look, you know, this is this is a new technology. Uh, here are the kinds of cool things you can do. Here's how you send money across borders without permission, without anybody uh, being able to intervene. 
So, so all that was happening. We were, we were reaching out. We were united in our cause. And what, what purpose would it have served to, to go and have a fight with, you know, Gavin or Greg or anybody else, right? So there, there, was, there was no reason for the group to sort of uh, turn inwards. And uh, so, so that was great. And then uh, I don't know what happened after that. I think uh, uh, craziness started happening within the Bitcoin community. And, and a very small issue got turned into a very, very big issue. And, uh, and, then, and then suddenly we found the, the Bitcoin crowd splintering, the Ethereum kids uh, fracturing off into their own universe. And then the ICO scams started happening. And that's, that's, that was actually, I think that was okay. The ICO scams unite the good crowd, I think. The more scammy things happen, the more other people sort of unite around it. Like today, you know, I can be, I can point to Tron and say, look, that's crap. And all, all the right thinking people will be like, yes, that's crap. There is no remedi remedial value in that thing. So in some sense, some of those things are actually kind of good in that they kind well, of if unite you get us one, again. If you get one good project out of a thousand bad ones, wouldn't you agree that it was good to have that face? Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. And I think what really truly happened now that I think about it is that the mission statements for the different communities got crystallized. Initially, it was, let's just do crypto, like, let's just teach people this is cool, it can do anything and everything. And after a while, it was like, okay, Bitcoin is different. It is a store of value. It's going to try to be a store of value. It's going to try to never change. It's not going to store, uh, support smart contracts, not in the Ethereum style. And so it's not going to try to do DeFi. That is not what Bitcoin does. It's going to compete with the dollar. And so that's a, that's a big undertaking in and of itself. You can't do that and do everything else at the same time anyway. So it's sensible. So, so that's what's happening with, with BTC. Uh, Bitcoin Cash is exploring, well, we want to be a payment system. And, and we want to be a medium of exchange. And, and that's their path. And we want to retain the incentive structures and the protocol as envisioned by Satoshi, which is fine. And so they're trying that. And uh, Ethereum is exploring its own thing. So let me tell you another story about Ethereum. Please. I was in, I was in the room when the DAO hack, uh, you know, the DAO hack happened. It's a long story. I won't tell you. Didn't the, you guys the, forewarn the DAO hack? I, I remember that, yeah. that you put out, I was just... I was just out and I remember you put out a report. I think you yeah. put out like five or six vulnerabilities. I forget exactly how many, but then why right. I was working as a dishwasher. So I couldn't really pay attention to the crypto world. What, what happened? Why? I know what happened with the Dow, but why did it fail? Right. It was, that was a fun time. Okay. I'll tell you the very quick story of the Dow hack. So uh, Vlad Zamfir was visiting my group in Ithaca. So we're hanging out. And um, and then he's Vlad Zamfir of, of Ethereum fame. So he says, you know, again, uh, this DAO thing, you know, they, they think they're going to raise a few million, but it might be bigger than that. And then um, it starts collecting money in it. And, uh, you know, before we, we know it, there's like, you know, tens of millions of dollars in there. And we go, whoa, this thing's going to be big and it might become a threat to Ethereum. Let's look into it because if everybody puts all their money into it and it gets hacked, then you've got a bit of a problem, right? Oh, so it wasn't a threat like another blockchain. It was more of like if this because th because whatever happens on Ethereum happens on the main mm -hmm. chain, if the DAO yeah. is broken, Ethereum could break. 
Exactly. You're like all the coins are gone, right? That, that could happen. So, um, so, uh, and it was collecting, a, it seemed like it was collecting all the coins. It collected like 15% or something of the coin supply. So that's a shit ton of coins in, in one contract. And, um, and so we started looking at the contract carefully and uh, we found, initially we found six different flaws. And you know, the, the way the, the Dow contract works, you've got like a, there's a period of uh, three weeks when it's collecting money. So it's during that phase that we're doing this research and suddenly the three weeks are gonna be up and it's going to be in a position to make decisions, and those decisions are manipulable or hackable. So we have to somehow get ahead of it. But it's like us versus, you know, we're racing against time. And the time is ticking because of, of a smart contract. There is no stopping it. So we're like, oh, shit, we have to get the word out. So I wrote this document. I put it on Google Docs, and uh, it went viral. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but, um, you know, when you share a Google document it's and people are reading it anonymously, they show up as animals like aardvark, beaver, camel, like they A, B, C, D, E, F, you know. And so, uh, so, so up on the right corner, I see hundreds of people, like hundreds of these animal names, and they're all looking at the document. And I'm actively editing it to add more bugs to the tally of bugs. So it went from six bugs to I think nine or 10 of them. And, uh, and the title of the paper was Call for a Moratorium on the Dow. We were calling for people to just either cool off or to say, look, let's not have any proposals go before the Dow. They, this thing is dangerous. And, um, and the community was debating what to do about that paper, whether we should do that, or whether we should enforce a moratorium. And, uh, and of course, the Dow went live in the process. And, um, and then before you know it, uh, I woke up one day and the hacker had used one additional bug he found uh, plus one of the bugs we, we discovered. Uh, so he used two two different vulnerabilities. I remember, to, yeah. He used a few, yeah. he used one to like drain it and one to... Uh, Stalk. Stalk, yeah. Yeah, he did, he did, yeah, exactly. He, he did a one, one re-entrancy bug to drain it and then the stalker bug to uh, to cause uh, so headaches. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. So, so... um. So when, when I got out, um, I was weird. And what I mean by that is, um, although I was, uh, only in there for like a year and a half, um, I don't mean only cause one day in there is terrible, but, um, you get, and I don't like to use, I don't want to use the term too strongly, but you do get institutionalized. And obviously the longer you're in there, the more you do. And so I was in there for a year and a half and I, and I got, you know, I was weird when I got out. And what that means is, is that my, my girlfriend at the time was now my wife. She's like, you're, you're kind of weird, Charlie. Like I was afraid to be in large gatherings. I didn't want to go and like, you know, you, I would walk into a Walmart and I'd break out in crazy sweats. I'd leave, whatever. Um, why am I telling you this? So anyway, so I'm, when I got out, I didn't enter, I didn't come back to the crypto space yet. I didn't even turn on my phone. I didn't turn on my laptop for like four months. Imagine going through life, not, not turning on a, I didn't have a smartphone. I purposely bought a shitty phone that didn't, didn't have any internet, and, and the text messaging was like T9. It wasn't even no internet, uh, bare, no media even. And the reason was that is I wasn't I, I wasn't ready to to rejoin the the the, the technical world like the, a world with the internet and computers. Like I wasn't ready for that yet. Um, 
And so anyways, I'm driving to work one day at the restaurant that I was working at and I'm, and I'm listening to the radio and, and I, again, I don't have a smartphone, but the guy I'm driving with did. And so he's the one, and he's totally not a crypto person, but he's the one keeping, he, keeping me updated on like some crypto world stuff. And so he, he goes, Hey, Charlie, we're driving to work one day. He goes, Charlie, like, uh, um, um, you heard about this Dow thing, like got hacked $50 million or whatever, a crazy amount of money was lost. I look at it. I just shake my head. I call my wife and I say, honey, I don't think I need to, I think I need to wait another month before I enter the space. I'm not ready. <laughs> the space is too much <laughs> shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of crap going on. So, uh, and, and so the point that I was going to make before was, um, you know, the Dow hack had happened. And, um, and all, you know, we were having a boot camp in Ithaca at Cornell, the IC3 boot camp that's famous. Like we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun at these events. And so there we are. Vitalik is there. Vlad's there. Martin Beze is there. Uh, Alex Van de Sand, you know, all of the, the, the big brass from, uh, Ethereum were there. So we're sitting around and we're debating what to do. And the idea of a fork comes out. And, um, and I looked at them and I was very, very, like, you know, very frank. And I was like, look, like guys. I'm, I'm super non-judgmental and it's totally fine by me if the use case that you want to go for is the illicit use cases. Like if you want gambling applications, if you want people who are going to use this thing for, you know, doing whatever it is that they want to do with money, uh, that is perhaps in the gray, gray area of the law or perhaps even darker than that, then that tell me that that's okay. You can tell me that that's, that's okay. And now I won't judge. Um, and because if you want to go after that, you cannot take back the hack. But if you're serious about your narrative, about the world computer, about programmable finance, uh, if you're serious that that's your main case, then you can totally undo the hack. So which one is it? And, and think carefully, and it's, it's fine by me either way. Let's have a, a frank discussion. So why did they choose that direction over maintaining uh, immutability, immutability in their blockchain. Why? So I never understood looked, why that decision so was made. They, they looked at me and immediate to their credit, immediately without hesitation, they said, look, what's most important to us is programmability. Uh, uh, what's most important to us is the, the concept of a world computer. We are not trying to go after the, the black market money flows. That's not our use case. That's for other people. That's you know, Bitcoin is used, among other things, partly very small percent for those kinds of flows, right? It and, was uh, and it always will be. It's just the way it's same, you know, same thing with every other currency. It's just kind of the way it is. Because it's money, right? Yeah. Like money should, if, if, <laughs> if you can't use it for illicit purposes, then it's not money anymore. It's something else. It's controlled money. It's somebody else's money or whatever else it is, but it's not money as we know money. So I agree with that. And Bitcoin should indeed follow the path it's on of, of immutability over everything else. So that's crucial uh, for, for Bitcoin. For, but I think at the time, the, uh, the mission statement was emerging for different, uh, different projects. And for Ethereum, the mission statement is not that. It's not to try to be, you know, uh, whatever Bitcoin is trying to be. It was, it's trying to, uh, to enable these dApps. And, um, and uh, suddenly there's a, there's a flaw. And I can tell you uh, the different arguments that were named very quickly for the DAO hack getting undone, for, for taking a ding. Um, argument number one is the amount of money involved is so large that the DAO hacker, if left unattended, would have a crap ton of ether and he would then be able to play a big role in Ethereum 2.0. 
because he will be able to stake so many coins, he'll be able to to have a huge say on how the how the how the coin operates from that point on. He he owns too much of the money supply. So that's that's issue number one that was raised. Issue number two was this is uh, very early in Ethereum's lifetime, and uh, undoing this hack will not set a precedent that other hacks will get undone. Uh, that we can do this once and never again, and um, and therefore this ding on immutability is not that big a deal because Bitcoin also has undone things. It's it hasn't undone them in a hard hard fork maybe, uh, but certainly there have been. Uh, well, you know, I see that I see that point because there were there were there were. You remember that? I mean, in 2013, there was an issue where the yeah. chain, where the Bitcoin chain split, and yep. we. It's a debate whether that was technically a hard fork, but it, it's it's in history. I mean, there was a. I remember it. I was yeah. in the IRC chat room. A lot of people. It was Bitcoin community was very small back then. But to that point, I see what their point was that Ethereum is, was too young. Right. But I don't right. agree because with. <laughs> Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. Like, I, I, these are still divisive points. People yeah. can disagree. So I'm just going to, in professorial fashion, I'll just, I'll just list. I the love points. it. I fucking love okay. it. So, and then the third issue that was raised, which I believed in, and uh, but I couldn't raise it too publicly because I didn't want to point fingers at people. Uh, but this was the reason why I was pro fork. And uh, here, here was my reasoning. So. It is completely okay to fork if the if the error is in the system, right? Like Bitcoin had the the uh, the underflow problem, and then suddenly somebody minted four billion bitcoins, and that was undone, right? And that was undone with a fork, and that's totally okay. And everybody thinks it's okay. There isn't a single person who's going to say, "Oh, look at Bitcoin; it it, it screwed up its immutability." I no, wonder if I tweet was- that and I put it as a thought experiment, what people would say. Um, I, I don't think anybody would, would ding BTC for it. You know, it's totally fine. The system was broken compared to what people thought it would do, and it didn't do what it said it would do, and therefore it's a bug, and you can undo that bug. I think that's fine. So in the same sense, if the flaw was in the system, it's undoable. Now, be careful here because the DAO fork, the DAO, DAO hack happened because of a bug that wasn't in the system. It's in a DAP. And so, so that's odd, but here is the situation and that would normally not call for a fork, but here is the part. The, the bug was in the DAP, it was in the DAO because the system developers failed to convey to the DAP developers a very bizarre quirk of their system. People should have known about reentrancy. Reentrancy should have been, you know, written in bold letters on every piece of Ethereum documentation. It should have said, look, guys, like there is this issue. You should never do X, Y, Z, or you're open to a class of attacks. Da, da, da. They didn't do it. So the DAP developers, sure, they put in a bug, but it wasn't their fault. The fault came from the system people. And in, in my, you know, because of my background as an OS person, we don't view the OS as just the little bit of code that's in the OS itself. It's the totality of the code. It's the totality of the code plus its documentation that makes up an OS release. So when you buy Windows, you're not just buying the kernel, you're buying the libraries, you're buying the system software that comes with it, you're buying the shell that runs on top. Those and the documentation that comes with it, these are all part of the system. So in my view, the bug stemmed from the system devs not communicating properly with the application devs. And, and because it involved 
finger pointing. I didn't want to say it too publicly, but this is this was the reason why I thought, look, it's it's just like the bug was in the in the core itself, and it was unintended. Uh, except it's it manifested itself in user code stemming from a mistake in the system. So we can undo this, uh, but only this. You cannot undo the parity bug, for example. That's different. Those guys screwed up on their own. They knew much better, and then they screwed up. But you can you can undo this one. So that was my take uh, back then. It was a heady time. It was a great time. It was a lot of fun and uh, really exciting, uh, heady times then. And then after, you know what happened afterwards. Well, then we started fracturing and, uh, and then the communities began, began to split. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. I'm not a computer scientist. I would even call myself a script kitty. That's how bad my my engineering skills are. I, I only write Python. So forgive me if I have any ignorance when it comes to, to anything related to engineering or computer science. The question I have is, um, on the same point that you just made with Ethereum, on the same points you just made, when it comes to scaling Bitcoin or, or other or other coins, and, and I want to talk about talk about Ava Ava Labs, um, wouldn't then be scaling on chain be 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 more dangerous? Although could be like I guess my question is practicality scaling on chain may be better. I I I'm not enough of a computer scientist to know. We've already moved on from this. Bitcoin Cash is doing scaling on chain and Bitcoin is doing scaling, you know, its way, which so far I I, I like. But the question is, um, if if scale forget the the forget the question of is scaling on chain a good idea? Because that has been talked about so many times already. I'm I'm sure. sick of it. But sure. then but forget that. So forgetting that for a second, wouldn't scaling on chain be dangerous for because of the same points that you just made? Um, well, it depends, right? So um, I don't, I don't think that uh, that what BCH was initially proposing um, is extremely dangerous. Um, it didn't really involve uh, that many lines of code change. So, um, so no, from a risk risk perspective, no. Um, but. Uh, you know, I don't know what to think about it. So here's what I think about it, Charlie. 
So if I think about the scaling wars and scaling discussion, I'm sick of them myself. And, uh, and so the, the only thing I really wanted during the whole discussion was for both sides to be scientific. So, you know, um, these numbers, like the size of a block, you know, the time between blocks and so forth, you know, we can debate them to death, but they're not, they're not issues that are really open for laymen to have an opinion about. Somehow we ended up polarizing everybody. Somehow we ended up politicizing this discussion. And somehow we ended up whipping masses, you know, into a frenzy. Uh, whereas this is really an issue of science. There is a point, like the core guys are right. You cannot arbitrarily make the blocks bigger and bigger. That's a dumb idea. And if you want to see how dumb it is, look at BSV today, right? BSV is, you know, doing some crazy shit with, with, with Craig in charge, and they don't know what they're doing. They end up uh, selfishly mining themselves by accident. They're that bad. And um, so, yeah, the core guys are right. There is a trade-off. You cannot make the blocks, you know, as big as you like, arbitrarily big. On the other hand, can you make the blocks bigger um, a little bit, maybe, without impacting decentralization? And it turns out there are ways, scientific ways of determining when that matters. That is, could I make the block bigger by another megabyte and, uh, and see what happens? It's possible but to from, examine. From what I understand, most people were not, like 90% of, of people weren't opposed to that. Like, so yeah, Segwit2x and that whole thing came yeah. out, which was a... A, a political solution to a technical problem. And because it was a political solution to a technical problem, that's why a lot of the developers balked. However, I, those same developers were, were the ones that were that were agreeing to this in the New York agreement. But wait, but but and, and my response is isn't all of Bitcoin a technical solution to a political problem? Or isn't Bitcoin a political solution? Like that's what I didn't I guess. I understand so, why, like, the precedent of the way things went down is bad and could have killed Bitcoin long term. Mm -hmm. But I still yeah, don't no, think we should have sacrificed a good, a potential good solution. And I don't know if it if it was for right. that reason. And that's what frustrated right. me. It, yeah, you know, the, the acting like child, like children. Yeah, exactly. That's what frustrates me. Well, acting like impetuous children who, who have an axe to grind for whatever reason I don't understand. And so what I'm suggesting is actually kind of interesting. And it's not, it's not just, you know, um, just it's, it's, it's to, to use science to its logical extreme. So it could well be that the current block size is too big. Okay. And it could well be that we would be better off if we made it smaller. And, but we never got a chance to explore that. And that pains me. So, uh, so that became uh, something that really pissed, pissed me off, to be frank. So uh, the right way to do this is to set up some kind of a dispassionate scientific study and to, to examine. And there is a bazillion things one could have done. You know, you can install software at different miners with miners cooperation to measure things that are hard to measure. And it turns out you don't even have to do that if you think hard enough. You can get, you can per perform certain measurements that are, that were considered very difficult before uh, by using other mechanisms. Oh, whatever, I don't want to get into technicals here, but we could have done scientific things and we could have found these numbers that were picked out of the thin air. We could have picked them in a much more scientific fashion that says, look guys, if you are happy with the level of decentralization at this point in time, 
then you should be happy with the point of decentralization at this other point in time or whatnot. So it's, it's possible to create metrics. It's possible to measure things. And it's possible to have these discussions in a fashion that's not so politicized, so divisive. So I was sad to see the division. Um, and uh, But let's move on from that. I think some new thing I see in the Bitcoin community is the is is um, is that the community is now in the hands of a minority that is trying to make it into a weird lifestyle system. So it's not I, I read tweets not so much about Bitcoin anymore. I read tweets not so much about taking down the central banks anymore. That's that's disappeared. Um, but I'm reading tweets about eating meat and what the heck. You know, since when did this become a lifestyle thing? Since when did this become a crazy cult where the initiation ceremony is to is to slaughter a, a cow? Like I like a piece of meat myself, but you know that's that, it's just. By bizarre. the way, for those listeners, like I love meat and I eat a very low carb diet, but you should. Same it's here. very unhealthy to eat more than like <laughs> fifteen twenty ounces of meat a week. FYI, just letting so, everyone uh, know. I, like I yeah, love no, meat. I, I eat I, meat three, four days a week, but it's just un. If you're eating more than twenty ounces of meat a week, it, like goes to your doctor. It's it's yeah. I like my keto diet as well. But the the bottom line is, you know, I want to be able to take, for example, here are the kinds of things I'd like to do. Students come in through the door and they say, "I'm really excited about cryptocurrencies. I want to be able to turn them on to the Bitcoin community, and uh, and say something like, "Hey, you know, go do go take the Bitcoin code, add something to it." I can't really do that. When I do it, they come back. They're like, these people are kind of weird. And and I can't say, no, they're not. They're, they're kind of weird. Right? No, I, fe- I felt the same way you did. I, I have to admit, I don't know if I've publicly admitted this for a long, for, forever, that, that there, there are times where I felt burnout to a point where I almost walked away multiple times from this whole space. But I didn't, and I'm happy I didn't. Because crypto Twitter and, and, crypt- and the, the, this is what I'm going to tell you, Professor. The, the community still exists and it's as strong as ever. However, yeah. it's not on the internet anymore. What I mean uh, by that is I used to never go to events. I used to, I used to go to a lot of them, but then I stopped because I was like, why am I going? But the, com- the, the good parts of the community are at meetups, friends' houses, conferences. It's really nice to see conferences now. Like it's nice to see more diversity and, and there's no hostility and no tribalism. And what's cool is that I have like a list of people that troll me on the internet and my bucket list is to meet all these people in person. And I mean, let's look at you, for example, like we're sitting here having a conversation. You're extremely well-spoken. You present both sides to the story. I'm disagreeing with you on some things. You're disagreeing with me. We're agreeing. We're having a very frank, you know, like, what did you say earlier? You said like, like, uh, I'm going to put on my professor's hat for a second. Like, but if, 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 if I were to, if you were to throw someone in the midst of the Bitcoin civil war and watch the tweets of people attacking each other. And I was in there too. And so were you like, we fell yeah. into the, into the depth of like personal attacks and things. Yeah. I guess like, I guess like it's a shame that that happened, but at the same time, yeah. like that's, that's gone now. Like, I don't, I, I see that on crypto Twitter a lot, but I, I don't see that in person ever anymore. And so like, right. Yeah, I, I wish it would be totally gone. So I found myself at some point, I would say two years ago, I was at the National Academy of, uh, of Science. This is a big deal to be invited to, to talk to the National Academy. And uh, there I am. And uh, I'm telling them about, you know, look, you spent the distributed systems community spent 30 something years chasing down the, this consensus problem. 
and um, and we explored a whole set of things. And it turns out everything we explored is under this one category of classical protocols. And I'm here to tell you that there's a new class of protocol that just emerged, and there's quite a bit of depth to it, and it changes the game. Da 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 da. I'm doing my spiel to say, look, crypto. Crypto, cryptocurrencies, not cryptography. Cryptocurrencies is a, is a field in its own right. It's emerging. It should get funding. It should get attention from the, the national uh, scientific community. And as I'm doing this, I can see that people are Googling who I am. They're looking into what's happening about me, around me. And it turns out, you know, Danny Darkpill or whatever is like posting like weird pictures of me photoshopped with whatever the yeah, heck else. Yeah, he was a weird guy. He's one of those people also like on Twitter and everything. Dank Darkpill or whatever. Yeah, and you're like, well, what the heck, guys? Like, here I am. Like, this is a common cause. We're all in it together. And and this is what I'm doing this very day. And, and it's So this is the day. thing. Like, a lot of people have talked about and spoken about like these consortium of trolls that get paid by like Blockstream and stuff. And not so so let's let's forget about like conspiracy theories and that for a second but what i will say this is that both sides are at fault all sides are at fault for not speaking up against the personal attacks for the other side meaning that right. if if some of the high profile um twitter personalities you know came out against personal attacking trolling is an art form and trolling in and of itself is not a bad thing but trolling when you're personally attacking people bring up their wife and children blah 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 doxing people nice. that's something that should never be done and we didn't speak out and i'm at fault at this too we didn't speak out enough against it and then someone like you gets put down so much that we lose and we've definitely lost a lot of good people that were working on bitcoin due to this right. and i'm not against right. bitcoin right now I, I love bitcoin more than anyone in the in the whole world. I love, this right. is my fucking baby. And yeah. so I'm allowed to be critical of the community and, and I'm allowed to be, and I, and I will be. Right. And I'll say this is that we are at fault. And that was a right. very, very bad. That was a very bad time for our community. And we should be ashamed of ourselves. We should be ashamed yeah. of ourselves for how that all went down. Yeah, I think it's it's. Just, I, I think I don't think anybody will look back and and criticize anything. We just going forward, we just have to be better people. So you know, there are a bunch of other things I've done uh, that people don't know about. But you know, I went from uh, you know. So I'm I'm you know my field. My field is distributed systems, and um, but I went to programming language people, and I said, look, we're going to need help. And I started pulling in colleagues into crypto cryptocurrencies. Uh, because we need the help of people who can prove smart smart contracts correct. We need the help of people who can prove code correct. And so, you know, for me to do this and, and for us to be able to bring in sort of the, the, the latest of technology into this field, there has to be a happy, positive community. I agree. So, so that that isn't there anymore, and uh, it's a social construct, and um, and uh, we kind of lost it. And once you lose the critical mass of of people, and and you you concede it to a bunch of trolls, then it becomes troll city. Um, and troll cities are okay too, but you yeah. know it's not the happiest of all worlds. You know, I wanted to ask you a question earlier. Um, digressing for a second, I wanted to ask you a question. So, as a computer scientist, and this was told to me by someone else who's also. Uh, been a computer scientist all their life. Um, he told me that the early Satoshi code, like the first, like the original C++ that was that that Satoshi had put out um, at, right after the white paper, 
Um, if you had looked at that, if you looked at that that early code before, you know, there were some major contributions to it. Um, do you think it would be? Would you have written it that way? Would you? I mean, frankly, this person told me that Satoshi was was not a very good developer himself because the, the original code, if you look at it, was just done in a way where like a lot of things that were done in the headers instead of in the body. And I may be mis misquoting what he said, but um, do you think that was the case? Do you? What do you think of the early Satoshi code? I mean, going into what do you think Satoshi was a computer engineer or was more of like a like a like a theorist? Monetary yeah, theorist. I've, I've looked at the code extensively, and I've I've thought quite a bit about the Satoshi setup. So um, I vacillate on the point of was Satoshi a singular person or a multiple multiple people team. Um, I would say ninety percent chance that it was a single person because there's one unified style all across, and um, and uh, and not really uh, signs of a of a large team there. So I think it was one person, and uh, we see signs that that one person uh, was self-taught. So this is not somebody who has a PhD in, in whatever topic in, in computer science. This is somebody who, um, who learned cryptography the hard way by studying things from forum posts and, and so on and so forth. You see it in his citations in the white paper. He ended up citing things that practitioners know about, but not academics know about. So he's not a formally trained person. Uh, I'm going to use he for the, I, I don't know why, but uh, it could be a she. So um, let's see. So uh, Satoshi, I'm going to use he because Satoshi is a male name. I always think of him as a, as a male person because of the pseudonym's gender. So um, let's see. So uh, the other thing that we see, though, is that he exhibited a, a mentality that's really hard to, um, uh, to find elsewhere. So... Uh, a, a normal person who studies cryptography would have done things the obvious way. And Satoshi did not do them the obvious way. He went out of his way to be, to, to be adverse, to think adversarially. So he doesn't use a single hash function. He, he's, he's suspicious of hash functions. He's suspicious of the motives behind those hash functions. This is Satoshi? He, yeah. He used, he, for example, uh, Bitcoin uses SHA-256 and RIPEMD-160. So uh, when you're creating a public address, not during the, the mining, but when you're creating a public address, you're using two different hash functions. Now, that's interesting. And the reason is the fellow, the Satoshi, is so, so paranoid about secret services or whatnot, breaking or having backdoors into hash functions that he picks a hash function that is invented by Americans and couples it with a hash function that's invented by European academics. Would you um, would you uh, agree would you agree to this statement then that maybe because Satoshi had built a system where you have a, a global supercomputer working to basically just brute force numbers um, inherently breaking down these these uh, uh, hashing algorithms that he would use two as a redundancy. No, no. I, it's it, yeah. I, I mean, it's some form of redundancy. What he's trying to do is he's guarding against hash functions being broken by secret services. This is not something you a normal person would do. This is not something that uh, that you know. Like if I take a normal person, like who who is who has a master's in in systems or a master's in cryptography, they wouldn't do this. They would pick one hash function. If I take a self-taught person who read everything there is to read, they still wouldn't do this. 
it has to have been somebody who spent a lot of time uh, worrying about uh, about what what uh, state actors are capable of. It has to have been somebody who has experienced writing code for adversarial use cases. So that really narrows down who Satoshi could be. It has to have been somebody who worked on PGP, for example. Um, and so there aren't that many of these can potential candidates out there. Uh, we know Hal worked on PGP. So Hal makes a very, very, very good Satoshi candidate in my book. So, um, but there are potentially other people as well. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, he's a very, very bright guy and um, invented something amazingly cool. And I can say this as a distributed systems person. My field worked on the consensus problem for, at this point, for about 45 years or so. And Satoshi came 10 years ago and he said, look, academics, everything you worked on, every single thing you did is super fragile. And he's right. And here I have something that's far more robust and he's right. And, and it, it was an amazing thing. Um, but I have to also add, and I think this is going to ruffle a lot of feathers, but I have to also say this. As of last year, as of 2018, Satoshi has been outdone in every way. So there is now a third big breakthrough. It's called the Avalanche Protocol. And it pushes mining aside and says, you are right, Satoshi. You were right and you are still right that the academic work, the classical protocols are super fragile. They never would have been a good basis for uh, what you tried to build. And in fact, people are trying to build things based on th th those academic uh, protocols. Libra is based on classical protocols. And Libra is going to have, what, 28 validators? It's a joke. It's not a decentralized system. It's Zuckerberg and friends. Um, so EOS, 21 validators. It's nothing. These yeah, are DPoS jokes. is... Uh, oh, I it's a joke. Yeah, I mean, like, we can... Uh, I'm not a fan of proof of stake. I, I talk about it on a lot of the shows. I'm still not convinced that proof of stake does not defy the laws of physics. Um, okay. You know, I still, I'm still not convinced. I'm still um, a big fan of proof of work. And, and I'm also a big, and I also understand the environmental and energy arguments. And I've, I feel like I've debunked them. Um, but D, yeah, but D, I'll, so, so I'm actually happy that you brought this up because I'm a big, like, uh, consensus algorithm nerd. I wish I had a t-shirt that says I love consensus algos. I'm like a super nerd when it comes to this stuff. I study them. I study them all. I study them, not just from a mathematical perspective, cause that was my, uh, that was my degree, but more from a socioeconomic perspective, like, like how humans act and react towards when it comes to like money and value and savings, blah, blah, blah. So what is the avalanche consensus? And how is it different? And how are you using this with Ava Labs? And, you know, what are you working on right now? Because you've taken scaling and you've taken some of these um, theories and you've you've launched a new company. You've you've went on leave from Cornell. You you left right. Ithaca. The man right. has left Ithaca. He's in the city now. What What's going on? What? Yeah, good, good point. Um, yeah, I did leave upstate. I'm now in New York City, uh, very close to Wall Street up here in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And uh, we are we are trying to do a bunch of things that other others in the space are not. Uh, we're trying to bring all of the benefits of the crypto space to uh, to assets that are currently not in digital form at all. Um, and powering all this is a new consensus protocol. And um, it is only the third time in 45 years that somebody has invented a new family of protocols. And so what's behind the new new platform? 
platform I'm building is called Ava, and the, the protocol behind it is called Avalanche. And Avalanche works differently from every other protocol out there. And um, it is robust, like, uh, like proof-of-work mining. Okay, so you can come in and without permission start being part of the system. It is fast and efficient, like classical protocols. It achieves finality in a second. So what takes an hour in Bitcoin takes a second in Ava. And it scales like no other. This thing can uh, make thousands of decisions per second. But most importantly, and this is really the key part that really gets me excited, tens of thousands to millions of nodes can be part of this system. So this is not something anyone else can say. So I can have you know, as many validators as, as anybody can throw at me. And the performance of the system is largely independent of the size of the network. So that is an amazing thing to be able to say and, uh, and a big, big breakthrough in, in how these protocols work. I can tell you a little bit about how the protocol works just so people have an understanding. Shall I do that? Like some people. Please. Often. Okay. So here is a very, very quickly. Um, our task is going to be to make a decision, right? So we want to make a decision and let's make it harder. Uh, let's suppose that there's a, there is some idiot who has issued a double spend. So he's paying Alice, and we'll call that Red, and he's paying Charlie, at, uh, Bob at the same, oh no, Alice, Alice is the evil person. Alice is paying Bob and Charlie at the same time. She has a red transaction that pays Bob and a blue transaction that pays Charlie. And we want, we want to pick one of these things, okay? So the system has to just say, pick one. And now if we had, so imagine that we have a large set of people, okay? So uh, we're in a stadium, we have tens of thousands of people, it's like a, it's a giant stadium, okay? 50,000 people, okay? So uh, if I wanted to use, um, let's say, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's protocol, it's kind of like the KISS cam, okay? So the KISS cam randomly selects somebody and says, hey, yo, you solved the puzzle, you're the, you're the random person, you tell us what goes in the block, red or blue. Okay, that's the kiss cam approach. It's a it's a perfectly fine approach. And uh, the problem there, of course, is uh, is uh, sadly that uh, to do this, you to participate, you need a mining rig, and uh, and it consumes a lot of energy. And also, after the decision is made, you have to wait a long time after for other decisions to come after you for you to have the six confirmations or more that you might need. So that's the Satoshi approach. You could use some other technique, like a classical technique. But those require everybody in the stadium talking to everybody else. So that's why you see all of these ideas like ETH2O. ETH2O is going to have, you know, 64 nodes in a shard or something, which is nothing. Those are small numbers. EOS, as I said, 21 nodes. These are very small. Or Libra using 28 nodes. It's nothing. These are, this is not decentralized. So we're going to use Avalanche. And here's how the protocol works. It's very, very simple. We're going to repeat the same dumb process. And the dumb process works like this. So everybody starts out and whichever transaction they heard first, they prefer, right? So suppose I heard of blue first and then you heard of red first. That's what you prefer slightly, uh, but that's not our decision yet. And the merchants don't know which one is gonna get paid. They are looking forward to the decision of the network. So what you do is you pick your best three friends, you know, at random. So you look around the, the, the stadium, you pick three people and you say, yo, guys, do you, you know, which one do you prefer, red or blue? And the answers come back, you know, red, blue, red. 
and you go, oh, looks like based on my sampling, looks like the stadium is, is going towards red. So I'm going to flip my preference towards red. I do the same thing. I might, I might sample all blues, in which case I turn blue. And then, you know, uh, your sound engineer does the same thing at the same time. He might sample all reds, et cetera, et cetera. And we repeat this process. It's a very simple process. You subsample the audience and you put your weight behind whatever you measure. And it turns out that in a very, very small number of rounds, somewhere between 15 and 20 rounds, everybody will converge to the same color. To see why that is, start from the worst scenario possible. Start from a stadium that's half red and half blue and look at what happens. After the first round, it's incredibly unlikely that we will be 25,000 red people and 25,000 blue people still. It's possible, but a very small likelihood. After the second round, it's even less like this, exponentially less likely that we will still be at that exact division point in that bivalent state. What we will have is a okay. pre-promise. You're, you're beginning to see it, right? Yeah. So after one round, there will be slightly more reds. And if, there is, if, it, if it was 50-50 after the first round, it will most likely be 51-49, one color or the other. Let's say it's reds. And so if the reds have a slight preponderance, then after the second round, that preponderance will amplify itself. Those 51 percenters are suddenly going to amplify from 51 to 52, and then 52 to 54, and 54 to like 57, 58, and then suddenly there will be this phase shift where you go from 58, 62, and suddenly you're in the 80s, 90s, and all of a sudden everybody's got the same color. In, in 2013, you, you posted a, a wonderful research paper called Majority is Not Enough, Bitcoin Mining is Vulnerable. In 2013, so I, uh, before I, after you finished talking about the Avalanche Protocol and Ava, I was going to ask you um, about that. But the question is, the vulnerabilities, you know, well, I, we could talk about the, that vulnerability, and, and I, I'm very familiar with it, but, and, and we'll mm -hmm. go over it for the listeners, but um, do you... Have you solved that vul those vulnerabilities? Because I remember when you po I remember when you posted that paper, and and Greg and Gavin um, mm -hmm. went back, and you guys were going back and forth, and that was really great. But but from what I understand, those vulnerabilities were not solved. Um, have you solved them? Yes. So Avalanche fixes all of those in a fundamental fashion. So the what was that vulnerability? Mining, it's called selfish mining, and uh, the trick is uh, in a in a proof of work protocol. Uh, what a miner can do is he doesn't have to be collaborative. He doesn't have to be a nice guy. So when he finds a block, he doesn't have to broadcast it to everybody. So he just keeps it behind his back. And what's really happening then is he knows the solution to the next block, but he's not telling anybody. So he's in effect ahead of the crowd and everybody else is working on a solution that is stale by now that this guy is, is ahead of the crowd and, uh, and could trump the crowd if he wanted to, uh, except he's, he's holding it behind his back. And so, uh, and just let me just go through the simple case. Um, with some probability, he will end up coming up with two blocks and he will keep both of them behind his back. 
And, uh, and what he can do then is suppose, suppose I am the selfish miner and suppose I've, I've maneuvered myself into a position where I have two blocks behind my back. And when you, Charlie, a nice, honest guy, comes up with a single block and you say, hey, guys, I've got a new block here. I say, Charlie, thank you. Uh, that was hard work. I'm sorry you spent so much energy finding that block because I've got two blocks right here that trump yours. And what happens then is everybody looks at your block, discards it because you're on the short fork, and they adopt the two blocks that I discovered and made public. Using this technique, I can knock out your contribution to the blockchain. And after a difficulty adjustment, uh, I will end up being more represented on the chain, and I will end up collecting more block rewards than you. And uh, it's a fundamental problem with Nakamoto mining. And... Um, uh, it's uh, it's actually stemming from the fact that um, that Nakamoto protocols are are leader based. The miner is a leader of sorts, right? He's saying, "I am the leader now because I solved the puzzle, and I'm going to tell you what happened." So, leader based protocols are subject to misbehaviors by the leader, and this is one of those kinds of misbehaviors. So, uh, uh, so yeah, so selfish mining is a is a is a problem. It's not so, such a big problem for Bitcoin in a BTC. It is a problem. It could very well be a problem for smaller variants like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin you know, BSV. Uh, these are problematic because uh, the hash power required, you could easily easily rent and attack these coins. Um, and uh, we've, we've, uh, we have essentially rumors that, uh, I'll just say that, uh, we have we have some information that selfish mining has happened on on uh, a bunch of altcoins. Probably, and, um, it's people yeah. don't realize how cheap and easy it is to to do attacks on altcoins. I mean, even Bitcoin yeah. Cash BSV. I mean, what does it cost to to you could reorg the whole BSV blockchain for like twenty grand or something? I forget the exact number um, right. for like one or, or two or, blocks. Right or or yeah, exactly. So for what, two Bitcoin, you could reorg yeah. the whole BSV chain. I mean, but um. I'm running out of time right. soon. I wanted to ask you another question. Um, oh, sure. Go ahead. Bitcoin NG. Um, I, right. I, 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 love, I love when people like theorize and conceptualize different, different ideas. And, and so when I was doing the research, um, and I remember, and it actually brought up an old email that I had written to someone talking about this, talking about your yeah. article. Um, this is what I understand. I liked, I, so I liked when you theorized about Bitcoin NG and you guys wrote, um, when you, when you guys put, put it out, put the, the content out there. Um, mm. I like how you basically very simply explained how, you know, the difference is this, how Bitcoin looks at past transactions to put in a block and how mm -hmm. Bitcoin NG would be forward thinking. Um, right. very, very basic concept to understand. You could, you can understand in one paragraph, but what I didn't right. understand is this. It said that NG elects a leader who then vets future transactions. I didn't right. understand, is that like a, a one person type of thing or is that a random thing? How does that, how does that election take place and, and, and how, is that, how does that follow decentralization or the path to decentralization? But the question I have is, whatever happened to that? Like, why didn't you launch a coin more for the, the experimentation of it? Like, why didn't you oh, yeah. ever launch something sure, sure. just for the yeah. fun? Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you what's happened there. So first of all, what is Bitcoin NG? It's a rethinking of the Bitcoin protocol to make it uh, lower latency and um, and higher higher performance. This was 20, 2013 or 2015, I forget. 
Uh, I, we did the work in 14 and published in 15, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Good. We might have published in 14. I'm not sure. Um, but the core idea in Bitcoin, uh, a miner publishes a block. And what he's saying is, in the last uh, 10 minutes, here are the transactions that I serialized. So that's fine. And, and he publishes a block by, by solving the, the proof of work puzzle. So in Bitcoin NG, uh, so that's a retrospective protocol. It's looking towards the, the, the history. And for like the longest time, nothing happens. And then suddenly there's a giant block. You know, relatively speaking, there's a very big block. And then that block is disseminated across the network. In Bitcoin NG, that's not what we do. Um, we have two kinds of blocks. So every 10 minutes or so, there's a proof of work block. And the miner says, hey, guys, I solved the proof of work block. And here is my key. Okay, so suddenly what he's saying is essentially something like, I've got the conch. I am the leader for the next 10 minutes to come until somebody else solves a different block and takes the conch from me. And so instead of creating a giant block with a lot of transactions, what he does is he publishes a small block with a key. And then as transactions come in, he signs them one by one by one to create a long chain and he ends up accomplishing the same thing, but not in a retrospective way. He says, I am the miner now. And then he starts minting these small micro blocks uh, as transactions come in. So uh, the, this, allows us, this allows a single miner to create an arbitrarily large number of, uh, of uh, to, to vet an arbitrarily large number of uh, microtransactions for, uh, you know, during his time as a leader. So it does away with the block size altogether. So instead of having a one megabyte versus two megabyte fight, you just say, guys, we just use Bitcoin NG and, uh, and you just do away with this stuff. You, you pick the, you know, you pick how fast you want your chain to grow. And, um, and then you, you make the chain grow according to that speed. Professor, so, I didn't, I didn't get to cover all the topics that I wanted to. Um, so we do have to have you on again, but we, we covered so many and I, and I just want to thank you for coming on and I'm happy for you and excited for you that you jump jumped back into the business world and everything, you know? Um, and, and I hope to see you soon. And, um, and I hope everyone follows you and, and, and continues to, and you know what it is? I'm, I'm happy that you responded to come on the show and I'm happy that you're still in the community. That's all I'm going to say. I'm happy that you didn't leave because a lot of my friends did. And so thank you. And, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. It was always, it's always been a pleasure to talk to you. Such a nice conversation today. Thank you. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.